Hello, hello to you one and all. It is Graham Norton here welcoming you to this meeting of my eponymous book club. We are here to talk about tales, tall, short and somewhere in the middle. Joining me to size everything up is the leading lady of the literary spirit level herself, Alex Clark. <gasps> hello, Alex. Hello, Graham. I'm here keeping absolutely everything straight and in good order. Marvellous. Lest we go wonky. Good to hear. Hey, uh, what's got your uh, finger straining pages? Well, look, it's the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? And as every single year, we get a lot of autobiographies that we start to wonder who yes. we might give them to for Christmas and all the rest of it. Uh, so I've I've kind of decided to, to immerse myself this year because they seem to be of a particularly high calibre. It's a kind of superstar smackdown, isn't it? It's I mean, there have been really a lot. And obviously, my name is Barbara by Barbara Streisand. Well, you know, if you weren't enjoying it, you could very well use it as a doorstop. It's nearly a thousand pages long. I mean, the audiobook, and I don't understand, because even a thousand pages shouldn't take you 48 hours to read out loud. But uh, my husband's listening to it, and apparently it's very conversational, as if she's sort of ad-libbing. So so it's kind of a conversation. It's an evening with, well, actually, it's several evenings with. Yes, I feel it's longer than the book. <laughs> but is he enjoying? He said it's, it's very good. She, apparently, the reason for the length of the book is because she suffers from total recall. Ah. She can't not remember. That's her problem, Alex. Well, anyway, I'm finding it quite enjoyable. But were she not to be to your taste? You know, they're all at it. Cliff Richard, Boy George, Britney Spears, Dawn French, Adrian Edmondson, Miriam, Margulies. They're just, they will not stop. And are there any of the upcoming batch that you're really looking forward to? I was so excited when they said Magnum P.I. himself, Tom Selleck, was going to be writing an autobiography. I can't wait for that. Now, certain vintage, I understand that, but I cannot wait to read it. Now, I want to read all about Higgins and what was going on on set in Magnum P.I. moustache grooming, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yes, some of our listeners may be scratching their heads. I know. Well, you know, we are for everyone here. Google it. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure to tell us all the highlights of that one. On we go. Our book this week is Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age, a story of race, class dynamics and sippy cups that starts with a young black babysitter being accused of kidnapping her three-year-old white charge. Here to discuss it are Cherie, Joseph Forrest, Katie, Jared and Simon. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hey. Oh, wow. Everyone's up and at them. Uh, Katie's got new ink, I hear. Yeah, so I, I've got a new tattoo, which is a, another tarot design tattoo. It's the Ace of Swords, which makes me sound very badass, but it's more of a sort of like mid-30s crisis. I'm just getting tattoos willy-nilly now. I Honestly, I heard that and I thought we were talking about stationery. That is how... <laughs> like, seriously, I shouldn't be allowed on this podcast, really. I'm just not with it enough. I too would be just as excited, Alex, if I got new stationery, so I feel like that's a valid one. And poor Cherie, uh, not in your house, are you? I am in the Premier Inn. Am I allowed to the say that? The Premier Inn. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> any old inn. It's two minutes from my house, but my house doesn't have any internet. But I won't be staying, I've decided. It's not... It, my house is nicer, let's just say. Okay. It's very nice of you to do it, because otherwise I guess the other option was a coffee shop or something. So it's very nice. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 
Well, off you go and eat your broccoli, and we'll speak to you later to find out if such a fun age was a trip to Peppa Pig World or a follow-up visit to the dentist. After, we've spoken to Kylie Reid herself, and after Alex has given her three of the best. And Alex, I believe you've come over all Downton Abbey this, uh, this episode. Well, up to a point. I mean, obviously, I started thinking about what a wonderful thing for a fiction writer that domestic servant and employer situation sets up that you can just have so much fun with. So I found some nannies. I found some fictional nannies, not quite Mary Poppins, rather more updated and frankly, rather more brutal. Uh, And I managed also to include something that is a little bit more reminiscent of Downton Abbey. All right. Well, I will go and polish the spoons in readiness. And while we're talking about people in positions of power... I don't trust any of the other four middle-aged men teetering on bar stools over that mirrored floor to be prime minister. I don't trust myself either. I'm standing because I feel the country is in crisis, and I believe I can forge a more workable Brexit and fight for reality and compassion in the center ground of a country that is painfully divided. But I don't consider my brain or that of any of the others adequate for our historical moment. Our life as politicians has rewired our synapses. Just as profoundly as the study of London streets has enlarged the hippocampuses of London cabbies. Rory Stewart, former cabinet minister and Conservative Party leadership candidate, and now one half of the smash hit podcast, The Rest is Politics, takes us through his Politics on the Edge, later on in Talking Books. Right, time for such a fun age. Amira is a 25-year-old black woman who is struggling with being a grown-up. Her only source of income is her babysitting job for the wealthy white Chamberlain family. Alex, spelt with an I-X, Peter, three-year-old Briar, and baby Catherine. Late one night, Amira gets a call from a panicked Alex asking her to take Briar out of the house while they deal with an emergency at home. She takes the toddler to her favourite store, and while they're happily looking at the nuts, a woman shopper alerts a security guard to the fact that Amira could have kidnapped the child. A confrontation happens, filmed by another white male shopper. Eventually, things are sorted out, but the incident triggers a series of events that has an impact on everyone's lives. Amira bumps into the videotaker, Kelly, a few days later on the train. They hit it off and begin dating. Alex, who is in the process of fostering her career as an author and campaign organiser, embarks on a crusade to try and make amends to Amira for exposing her to such a terrible experience. And, as it turns out, Kelly and Alex have a history. When she was just plain Alex, with an E, and living in her parents' mansion during high school, he was her first love, and they each have a very different version of how he came to break her heart. The story unfolds over the few months after the grocery store episode and explores just how profoundly privilege and prejudice can influence the course of lives and relationships. Such a Fun Age is Kylie Reid's debut novel. It was an international bestseller and long-listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. It's a book which hinges on a single event that has huge repercussions. When Kylie and I spoke, I wondered if that was also the start of the story for her or if she had it in her mind already. I knew that it was coming, but it was not where I started. So I had written 
almost diary entries for Amira and Alex before trying to get to know them. Amira presented herself to me very clearly. I always knew her name was Amira. Alex was not so clear. She went through many different names and variations. And so I feel like writing about what they would think from a first person place was a great way to get to know them. And then I put them in the grocery store to start out the story. And when did the other elements come, like Kelly and that whole backstory of high school and things? All of that came a little bit later. But another thing that I learned in graduate school when I was writing this was if you keep referring to an incident and have your characters referring to it, you should probably just write it. And so the flashback scenes (laughs) with Kelly did come later, maybe after the book was pretty much finished. And so I do plot things out. I write down what's going to happen. But I also feel like if everything is going according to plan, something's wrong. Like I'm not listening to the story enough. And so there is a lot of plotting, but a little bit of rearranging as well. And now Cherie, who chose the book for us, she's got some questions for you. Okay, great. And uh, her first one is, the books talk about the dynamics of interracial relationships and the difficulties that can arise. Uh, How easy did you find to write a subject like that, considering both sides, kind of inhabiting both sides? I feel that when it comes to interracial relationships, one thing that we have to consider is income and class. I think a lot of people think, oh my goodness, he's white, she's black. How did they do this? And then you say, oh, well, they went to the same school. <laughs> they went, they grew up in the same place. I think for Amira and Kelly, it was more about the fact that he has a really steady income and she is very fluid in her income situation. And so Race is definitely something that they think about and talk about because it's there. It would affect them if they ended up together, if they had children together. It's something that they would need to come at. Um, In terms of getting into both sides, I mean, you would never say to someone who wrote Medea, like, so she kills her kids. Did you, how did you do that? Did you have to do that? You You just have to dive deep and say, okay, what do I think drives this person and what makes them tick? And sometimes it's a little bit easier with certain characters and sometimes it's harder. Because with Alex, did you bounce it off people? Did you got to go, oh, can I push her further? That kind of thing? Or was it all you? I do a lot of interviews for my stories. For this one, I interviewed a ton of mothers, a ton of babysitters, getting their voices in my head, that really, really helps. Sometimes someone will say one little thing and I'm like, ooh, that's kind of her. And I'll try and jump off of that. For this novel, I read the book called Uneasy Street, Anxieties of Affluence that was written by sociologist Rachel Sherman. And so I feel like going to the experts, like sociologists and ecologists, like that's what really makes the writing come out. And is that, I mean, because, you know, racism, I think particularly a lot of white people have this idea of what racism is. And your book isn't about that. It's about kind of all those microaggressions and kind of the insidious racism. Was that always your aim with this story? I feel that, you know, if you're writing a story about race, you have to tell the truth about how race operates. And I think that we were, especially when I was writing the book, we were in this phase where you would see these grand heinous acts of racism with people literally being murdered on your television screen. And it was just horrendous across the board. And I think that people kind of got it in their heads of like, okay, that's what racism looks like. As long as I'm not doing that, I'm good. I'm not causing any damage. When really there's little microaggressions that just annoy the heck out of you, but there's people not getting hired for certain jobs or there's schools that aren't funded and they're super moldy and then all of their students are getting sick and can't learn. And that can also kill you. There's all of these other insidious ways that racism pervades that comes with a smile. And the kind of inner morality of the book, how did you gauge what 
punishment should be meted out to various characters? How harsh did you want the downfalls to be? That's a really great question. So I teach creative writing now. And one thing I talk with my students about is your story has to go somewhere. Your characters have to have an emotional journey. But that does not mean that the resolution resolves everything. You know, if, if your grandmother dies in the beginning, it does not mean that she comes back. If you have someone who's really mean in the beginning, it does not mean that at the end they say, you know what, I was wrong <laughs> and I'm going to change who I am because that doesn't really happen too often. And so it's a tricky balance because I love a good story too. And I love seeing, you know, everything come together. But there was no way that I could set Amira up to live in the house that Alex lives in or have the health care or the, you know, riches that she has. And there's also no way that I could take those things away from Alex because she has them forever. Some people fail up and up and up. And if you acquire a certain amount of money in your later life, if you come from money, there is nothing that will take that away. And so it's being true to the story of what I want to see, but also being true to life in, in those circumstances. And another question from Cherie is, she wonders, do you see any similar or common ground between Alex and Amira? I think that Alex and Amira are both interested in story, but in two very different ways. Amira is interested in what people think her story is, and Alex kind of understands that what your story is doesn't really matter. It's how you tell it. Alex is very good at cover letters and presenting herself a certain way. And Amira doesn't even have social media because she doesn't want to show people like where she is at this time in her life. So I think that they're both obsessed with image and story, but they're hitting it from two very different lenses. Talk to me a little bit about uh, writing Briar, because it's very rare for a child of that age to be a character in a book, a sort of fully formed character. How difficult was that? It's funny you say that because we are still talking about a film adaptation for such a fun age. And my producers are like, please make her older. We can't deal with a three-year-old, please. (laughs) We don't want to deal with a three-year-old on set. So I don't know what's going to happen there. But when it came to the book, I find that children first of all, in real life, are so much more adult and odd and nervous and serious than we give them credit for. So I wanted Briar to be this odd, nervous, fascinating little girl. And I I wanted the things that she said to be her intelligence and not anybody else's. I also find that in literature, children are used as this like precious plot driving device, like, oh, they drop a secret at the perfect time, or they say the exact wrong thing. And I didn't really want to do that to Briar. I just wanted her to be her full intelligence, her full self, and also just be really adorable to watch. (laughs) Uh, There's some questions we ask everybody. Do you remember of a book that kind of opened up the world of reading to you? What sort of age were you? I do. And I have it here (laughs) with me. So you guys can see it. Okay. This is a book called The Monster at the End of This Book. It's about Grover saying, hey, don't turn the pages. There's a monster at the end of this book. And every page he says, no, 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 seriously, you can't. And it grows and grows. And at the end, he says, oh, wait, I'm the monster. I'm so embarrassed. This book seeped into my entire personality as a writer. I remember being two or three and reading it. And I loved the low level dread that I had. Like I was afraid that there was a monster at the end of this book, even though I knew the ending. And still as a writer today, I find that I'm trying to create scenarios where the reader knows something bad is going to happen, but they can't stop reading it. And they're so looking forward to seeing what happens at the end. 
That and embarrassment. I like writing about embarrassment a lot. So this one had a big effect on me. Wow, that's an amazing kind of through line from a book you wrote as a child. Yeah, I wasn't even probably reading it. I was probably just looking at the pictures. It had a big (laughs) effect on me. Uh, The next book is one that you feel not enough people know about, one that should have had more kind of fanfare when it came out. That book is Jillian by Hallie Butler. It's very short. You'll read it in a day about a young woman who works with this woman named Jillian at her medical office. Jillian is, I think she's in her 40s. She's messy. She's obsessed with sugar. She wants to get a dog. She's the most unfunny person you've ever met. And it is the most true-to-life book I have ever read. It's so dark and hauntingly real. And I think everyone should read it. Anyone who's ever worked ever should read this book. Jillian, yeah. Jillian, okay. And the final book I'm looking for is the one that you're jealous of. The the one that you just kind of think, oh, why didn't I? Okay, I have it here on my desk as well. It is Salvage the Bones by Jesmyn Ward. This is probably the most beautiful book I've ever read. It is about a young girl and her family full of brothers and her father, and they are living in the fictional town that Jasmine Ward sets all of her novels in, in the Delta. And you know Hurricane Katrina is coming, but the world of this family, a hidden pregnancy, dogfighting, poverty, that is what takes center stage. And I think it's a lesson in taking a real-life event And putting it in the background and making people's problems the real thing. Like when you're writing about race, black people are not always like thinking, wow, I am black today. How do I go about They're just living their lives. They're having crushes and doing money and all of those things. And I think that this is a great example of using a big life event, but keeping the people first. Is it too big of a stretch to say Hurricane Katrina is Grover the monster? I mean, it might be. It's... (laughs) I don't know if hurricanes get embarrassed. I would be embarrassed if I was a hurricane, but that might be the through line here. Kylie Reed on the evolution of her reading and writing and on her novel, Such a Fun Age. And Kylie's new book, Come and Get It, is out at the end of January 2024. So, Alex with an E, uh, the dynamics of the difference in wealth and social position between upstairs and downstairs, I mean, that's always been a great inspiration for stories, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it it goes back forever. And in fact, you know the way that I always try to get something else in. Uh, I'm going to say that I haven't included as one of my three, (laughs) but I will mention the ever, ever popular Rebecca from 1938 by Daphne du Maurier. No housekeeper ever more terrifying than Mrs. Danvers. And, you know, we know this from the way that that has just persisted through various adaptations. So, you know, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a wonderful book. But I am coming a little bit more up to date. And I'm beginning with Laurie Moore's A Gate at the Stairs. Now, Laurie Moore is a great, great favourite of mine. Yes, She's got a book too. out this year uh, with a wonderful title, I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home. But many years ago, she wrote a book called A Gate at the Stairs, which was about a young woman, rather kind of similar, you know, trying to get her adult life together, just coming out of college, who is hired by a couple to be their nanny, except they don't actually have a child. They are in the process of trying to adopt a child. And this process, of course, becomes incredibly fraught. And Tassie, our heroine, becomes uh, very, very much enmeshed with their lives and rather problematically so. But it is an incredibly strange and wonderful novel because you feel 
very much for everyone in it, but also that there is a tremendous, tremendous weirdness at the heart of this couple who are desperately trying to create, or perhaps as we discover, recreate this perfect nuclear family. And that is often what's at stake, isn't it, in in books like this? The idea of the home as this image of perfection that, that never is, as we know. And also inviting a stranger in. It's so intimate. Precisely. And you always get that thing, don't you, that someone clearly in that in that uh, scenario wants an ally of some sort. Oh, can I just say, while you're squeezing ones in, I'm going to squeeze in Laurie Moore's self-help, uh, her book of short stories, which Absolutely is Absolutely marvellous. Now you've got me going. I'm now going to say Birds of America, another set of short <laughs> stories by her. I mean, she is a marvellous writer, isn't she? She really is terrific. Okay, book number two. Okay, book number two. Now I've got to tell you, I mean, this comes with trigger warnings. It starts with an incredibly explicit act of violence. It is Lullaby, also published as The Perfect Nanny, I think, um, by Leila Slimani, uh, the French-Moroccan writer. Uh, And it is the story of a couple in Paris. The woman, Miriam, has seen her career go somewhat by the by. She's a very ambitious lawyer, but they have two very small children and her husband is not being uh, super helpful. And so they hire a nanny called Louise. And Louise is a rather strange woman, but also the perfect nanny. She's an older woman. They don't really know anything about her life. Her backstory slowly emerges during the pages of this actually not particularly long novel, but one that packs such a powerful punch. It is a deeply uncomfortable read about what happens when there are class collisions, race collisions, social collisions in a very fraught environment. And I, I would say it doesn't end happily, but actually it doesn't start happily. Uh, all right, your final choice, please. Well, you did mention Downton Abbey, and this is not quite that, but I thought, okay, we'll go a bit country house. This is not a nanny, this is a butler, and indeed a housekeeper, and I have to include 1987's Remains of the Day. Yay! By Kazuo Shiguro. It's almost like a perfect novel, isn't it? It really is. So it's such good. a good novel, because it kind of gets everything in. It's got this idea of an elderly butler on the verge of retiring, although what is he going to do when he retires? He's only ever been a butler. His father was a butler before him. Uh, and he is making a pilgrimage through England, a sort of road trip. But he is thinking of his life as a butler in one of the grand houses of England. And you get this very intimate portrait of what life was like in this house and his own emotional difficulties. Uh, but you also get this sort of suggestion of what uh, life was like in England in the run-up to the Second World War. It's a fascinating book, wonderful book. All right, well, thank you very much for those recommendations, Alex. And if you've been too busy polishing the dressing gong to make a note of all the books we're talking about, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast right there. Right, it's time to talk about Such a Fun Age. Joining us above stairs to do that are ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hello. Hi. The mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam, MBE. Hello. Former book blogger and bookseller and now NHS administrator, Jared Leachman. Hello. Hey. And fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the South, Cherie Millington, who chose such a fun age for us to talk about. So what was it about this book, Cherie, that appealed to you and and you wanted to share? 
Well, this came out just before the pandemic. I hate to mention that. Um, And there was so much hype around it. I remember it was kind of on everyone's lips. So I had to read it. I wanted to have it as a book for my book club. It's just so witty and well-written. And as a young black woman, I definitely related to the protagonist. And also on second reading, it just goes down really easy. It's just a really good, fun book. Such a fun book. Oh, I see what you did there. Very good. Uh, Katie, did you, did you have fun with it? There were moments that I really, really loved. So the opening incident, brilliant, really captivated me. I was like, oh God, this is starting good. And then for some reason, I found it quite difficult to concentrate. I know Kylie Reader has to lay the groundwork for all of these backstories. And that is very well done and it's very intriguing. But I think... I just found it slightly not holding my attention in that big middle section. And then it suddenly picked back up again. Um, I think there's a lot to love, but it wasn't my favourite book, I'm afraid. Yeah. Uh, Jared, were you gripped? No, not at all, to be honest with you. Um, I did like the beginning of the book again. I found myself arguing with the protagonist a little bit, just because I was like, this is why you don't look after white children. (laughs) 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 Things will kick off. Um, So, like, I did enjoy it. I think it was just... I just kept thinking about Queenie. There's this book called Queenie by Candice mm. Carty Williams. And mm. she, I think, touches on, I guess, the millennial, I can't even say the young black woman experience because I don't know because I'm not a young black woman. But <laughs> I like to think she touches on the young black woman experience really well as well. And I think I haven't read that book in a couple of years now. So I just wanted to go back and read that book. There was nothing in this one that just made me want to continue turning the page. I'm surprised because one of the things that surprised me about it was how plotty it was. Uh, Saima, did you follow the plot? Did you enjoy the book? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I, I find that really interesting, Jared, because that you're talking about Queenie. Because I read Queenie and, you know, it was, it was all that big rage about it in terms of it was uh, Bridget Jones and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But actually, I, I far preferred this. I thought it was really funny and I enjoyed it. And I'm just going to pass it on to my daughter. I felt it was sort of the language and the the interplay between the characters. I thought it was actually very spot on. Because Katie, did you not find it funny, kind of the satire of, of that white family? I really loved that whole side of it. It is super cringe and it is super cringe listening to it, bluntly as a white woman, because you just are like, oh God, I really hope I've never been this terrible in my life. I'm sure I probably have. And that's part of why it's so genius. Definitely that whole portion where Alex and her silly sort of renamed name even, where she's like trying to get in with a mirror and trying to like really ingratiate herself. And you're just like, oh God, please stop. Katie, imagine being a white woman reading this called Alex. I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) What you were saying earlier does sort of reveal that she does have a real gift for a kind of set piece scene and that some of the plotting was so intricate it slightly gets in the way. You're kind of getting through the plots. Mm. I really, really enjoyed it. But I also thought you are so very clearly with Amira in this experience and, and thinking these people are just, oh my God, how can she sort of get through uh, having to deal with them? But I don't think you felt total lack of sympathy for everyone because everyone felt that they were kind of haplessly and awfully doing their best in some ways. But I just saw all the kind of dynamics. I mean, her as a mid-20s person trying to make their way and not having any of those kind of economic opportunities and the whole kind of structural way that everything was making her life very difficult was kind of well done and not heavy-handedly done. Weirdly, I related to Alex more than I related to Amira. I know that's a shock. Amira, she annoyed me in the fact that she's so rudderless 
And I don't know many people that age that aren't super ambitious and really striving for what they want, especially in this day and age. I think that's kind of a misconception. No, I know a lot. (laughs) I think when you get to your early 30s, that's where you have a crisis of confidence. Like, who am I? What can I do? And Alex, I think, encapsulated that brilliantly. She's so desperate to kind of fit in, be successful, be woke, be cool, be friends with the baby sister, (laughs) but failing miserably. So I found that she was a bit more of a believable character for me. What about you, Jared? Do you believe Amira? Yeah, I think I do know actually uh, quite a few people who they either get the a nice entry level job at a big company or whatever, or they don't get the nice entry level job and they just kind of plod through their twenties, not doing much in particular. I think I moved away from a lot of those people when I moved down to London. To be honest, <laughs> left a lot of them in Nottingham. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did um, believe her as a character. I don't necessarily particularly like her. Didn't necessarily dislike her. I was just kind of in the middle with her as a character. I didn't need Alex in the story though. I think if it was just about Amira and everything she was going through and her friends, um, I would have been happier with the story, I think. Is, it, is one of the problems that the, the privilege that we see with the Chamberlain family is very American? It, it's, it doesn't seem like very British, that, that kind of privilege. I don't know. I used to live in North London, so... <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, I think, I think we see plenty of that privilege in the UK. So. People who are in that position of privilege, they kind of have to make problems for themselves or find issues <laughs> that don't exist in order to have an exciting life. And I think that's yes. definitely what Alex has gone and done. She could just be happy and very stress-free, but she's yeah, absolutely. inventing problems. And also, I think that kind of level of trying to be so self-aware that you're actually complete <laughs> lack of self-awareness and what is actually coming out of your mouth <laughs> yeah what well, is that thing the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions because you know it's yeah uh, what about the plot everyone what did we think that that was it satisfying the plot or was it too wrapped up in a bow was it too pat in the end i i love things wrapped up i'm a harry <laughs> potter fan i just like oh, things being wrapped up but also this even though it's a very far-fetched story I think the whole kind of crux of the story is that it is just a very small world after all. You could end up dating your employer's (laughs) (laughs) ex-boyfriend. I haven't yet, but it certainly could happen. Well, hang around the Premier Inn and who knows what's going to happen. (laughs) You never know. I think it was interesting, actually, having heard her interview, when she started mentioning how she'd studied writing like at graduate school and now she's actually teaching writing as well, I suddenly had a bit of a moment where I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense to me because it is very well crafted. But there were points which just left me a bit cold. And I think you've almost overdone it now. Do you know what I mean? There was a bit of me that wanted it to go totally mad at the end and like something really wild happened because she set up these really explosive moments. And then I actually found the whole postscript thing a bit unsatisfying. I, when I listened to her interview as well, I actually thought, oh, wow, you've actually really done your research and you, you know, you really honed this, which actually I think sometimes shows through. I liked the fact that Alex was in there. I liked that whole embarrassing awkwardness of some of it because I think it's actually so realistic. I think if it had been just Amira, it would have been probably a little bit predictable. Yeah, I feel like I, we haven't got to really the bottom of why Gerard didn't gel with this book (laughs) (laughs) like i know he didn't like it as much as queenie but you know books exist in their but in their own in their own right uh i I wonder what it what it was that just left you cold i i actually don't know because i was thinking about it a lot and um i didn't 
I didn't actually make it to the end of the book, so I'm just going to say that as well. And I was talking to... Oh. I know. Gerard! What did you think about the ending, Gerard? <laughs> when you were talking about it, I was like, yeah, 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 you guys should talk about it some more. That was great. Yeah. You, were, um, you, were very, you were very quiet about the plot. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, my missus has read it. I asked her about it. She didn't remember the ending of the book either, so she couldn't save me. Either. But like, um, I think it's literally just the author's voice just didn't connect. I didn't find the writing engaging at all. Do you think this is a male-female thing? <laughs> I was thinking Maybe. that, but that's why I mentioned Queenie, and there's been other books in a similar vein, and I think that's probably going to have something to do with it. But yeah, it just fell flat for me. The whole thing just fell flat. Okay, time for scores. Scores out of 10. I'll start with you, Saima. Uh, how likely are you to recommend this book? I'm definitely going to recommend it. I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to pass my copy on to my daughter. I'd say I'd give it 8 out of 10. Eight out of ten. Mm-hmm. Or we'll go to uh, Jared next. I give it a two. <gasps> yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, Katie, can you do better than two? Yeah, definitely. And there are definitely people I would recommend this to, but it wasn't it wasn't my favourite. So I would say six to seven out of ten. Six. All right. That's Solid. Yeah. Simon really liked it. It's she won with eight, so that's good. Uh, uh, Cherie, <laughs> what what do you think? <laughs> I'm genuinely shocked. I thought this would be tens <laughs> oh, across no. the board. I, I really did because I did, we did it in our book club, and about 25 women all loved it. Um, but maybe maybe it's a girl boy thing. So I, I'd give it a, a nine out of ten. I think it's just such a good book. It goes down so easy. I'd recommend it to people that don't love reading because it just goes down really smooth. Yes, I wonder has it aged quite badly. Has the discussion moved on, do you think, since this book was published? No. No, Simon says no. I found it quite... The one thing I found really unbelievable, actually, was that there's a 20-something-year-old who didn't have Instagram. (laughs) That's that's really amazing. But every time it came up, I was like, that's absolute rubbish. I'm sorry. (laughs) But that's what makes her cool. That's what makes her so different. Uh, All right, well, thank you very much for those scores and for discussing such a fun age. Time to find out what we'll be talking about next time. And I believe it's the turn of Jared now. This better be good. What do you got for us? (laughs) (laughs) So next week, we've got The White Tiger by Aravind Adiga. And why that book? Um, So when I first read it, it blindsided me completely. Um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And without ever visiting India or knowing anything about Indian culture, I felt like this just opened my eyes to an entire country um, in such a powerful way. And it connected in a way that I think, regardless of what country you're from, you can find a kind of a truth to the essence of what it's like to be human and poor in this world. Um, I love it. I really love this book. All right, that's The White Tiger. We'll be talking about that next time. In the meantime, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you along the way. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Now, talking books, and here is someone with a vision. Looking at the whole golden block of Parliament from Big Ben to Victoria Tower, I felt that none of my public life to date would make sense unless I at least tried to enter what Michael had called the arena. Being a civil servant was not enough. It was only via Parliament that I really had a hope of preserving what I still loved and repairing what was shameful about British policy at home and abroad. 
Rory Stewart began his career as a diplomat, took a couple of years out to walk across Afghanistan and adjacent countries, became MP for Penrith and Border in 2010, and then a cabinet minister, first for David Cameron and then for Theresa May. He competed for the Conservative Party leadership in 2019, losing to Boris Johnson, and then resigned first from the cabinet and then as an MP. He's now a fellow at Yale University and co-host with Alistair Campbell of the wildly successful podcast, The Rest is Politics. He has just published Politics on the Edge, a memoir from within, detailing his 10 years in Parliament. He voiced the audiobook, so we needed to talk to him, starting with whether people suggested he exercise some caution when writing about his political career. They very much warn me off, Graham. So it's a very bad thing if you're a politician to write about your colleagues in this way. I had a friend who ran to be Prime Minister of Canada who said, if you want to go into politics again, you can't be honest about what it's like. You've got to find a way of being very polite about your colleagues and above all, talking up your own achievements so that your book is like a kind of manifesto for your run. But I didn't want to write that kind of book. I wanted to try to be honest with the public about what it's really like working inside this thing and why I feel so much of the stuff that goes wrong that we see in our daily lives is the result of the kind of culture that the very weird combination of sort of bullying, ambition, fake charm, jargon, nonsense that makes up daily life in politics. But fundamentally, it was a a really depressing experience. I mean, I I have never worked in an organisation with colleagues quite as bad as politicians. How much of it do you think can you take the blame for? I mean, did you fail inside that thing or can no one succeed? Because people do succeed inside it. Well, it depends what you mean by succeed. (laughs) So there's no no doubt that in a sense, Liz Truss succeeded. She got to be (laughs) prime minister. Yep. But the problem is that the qualities it takes to be promoted and make it to the top, which are all about sounding super confident, bluffing your way, coming up with radical, silly ideas, flattering the press in the right way. These qualities get in the way when you actually want to run things or govern things. And and part of the book is about the fact that paradoxically, the best of my colleagues don't end up as prime minister because the things that make them such good ministers, which is that they're interested in detail, they listen to people, they're prepared to change their mind, they're quite humble, don't really help you if you're running to be prime minister. But given that there seems to be no artifice with a lot of politicians now, there are, you know, you talk in the book about, you know, there's no shame, embarrassment, remorse. It's all out there. So how do you explain that voters know all that stuff and still don't care? I think with Boris Johnson, and it's, it's probably true with Trump and it's true with a lot of populists around the world, it's that people were so fed up with the system. They'd lost all trust and belief in anybody and they wanted to throw him like a hand grenade at the system. And if I said to people, look, he's not honest, they'd say none of you are honest. If I'd say he's not competent, they'd say none of you are competent. So there was a a profound kind of despair and cynicism which was animating it, which made you think, yeah, okay. I mean, Boris Johnson himself would sometimes say this. He'd say the public think all politicians are schmucks. And the reason I'm successful is that I'm the only one prepared to openly admit that I'm a schmuck. He he would trade off this. Is there any hope? Or are you just kind of, you know, really just throwing the the keys over and kind of going, no, that car is banjaxed, it'll never run again? Well, there's quite a lot of banjaxing going on. But I do think 
If you were serious about fixing the car, it can be fixed. There are things you could do to improve the system. But to get there, I've got to convince people there's really a crisis. If people don't understand how much of a problem we're in, they're not going to be motivated to improve it. And also, presumably, all the people with the power to change it are invested in not changing it. That's right. The, the, the turkey's never very keen on voting for Christmas. <laughs> uh, this is audible. So we're talking about the audiobook. In this book, a lot of famous people talk. You know, Boris talks, this trust, Michael Gove. These are voices we know. Uh, how intimidating was it to get into the booth and uh, start reading aloud? Incredibly intimidating. And of course, I'm not Rory Bremner. Some of my impersonations are truly terrible. I have people responding to my Audible book saying, I'm really loving it because your impersonation is so funny. I try to do Pretty Patel, which is impossible because she's got a weird mix of Essex and Hertfordshire going on in her voice. Liz Truss, it's all about the intonation. It's that she puts pauses in, in places where you shouldn't have pauses. Or she suddenly puts weird bits of punctuation that don't make sense. And then Boris Johnson, I mean, it's impossible because everybody in the country can do a sort of Boris Johnson impression. And, and my impression is therefore really bad. It's basically like if I was telling a joke involving regional accents and everybody would say to me, yeah, great Russian accent there. <laughs> And when you were reading it aloud, did you get a different impression of the book? Yeah, I heard you in an interview saying that you thought, you know, Liz Truss was a comic creation in your book. But the person interviewing you was saying, oh, she came across as a villain. Did tone change as you read it aloud? Yes, I think tone can change when you read it aloud. And hopefully the humour comes across a bit more. Because sometimes I'm being very deadpan in my writing and people will read it and not quite understand that I'm trying to bring out just how absurd it is. So, you know, Liz Truss will say to me, Rory, I want you to cut the budgets of the national parks by 20%. And I'll say, sexually say, but I mean, I, I think that's a terrible thing to do. It's going to do a lot of damage. So she'll say, OK, Rory, for you, 5%. And then I'll say, but Secretary say if you're just cutting by 5%, probably best not to cut it at all. And then she'll say, all right, for you, I won't cut them at all. And then she pirouettes and leaves the room. And I'm just trying to get across how mad that is, that there's just no way that you can imagine, you know, a media company being run like that or a sandwich shop being run like that. And yet this is somebody in charge of a budget of many billions of pounds. Let's find out about you and books. These are some questions we ask everybody. Um, is there a book that kind of introduced you to reading? Were you a, a bookish boy? Yeah, I was a very, very bookish boy. I mean, I learned to read very early. Um, so I, I, and I, by the time I was six, I was reading mostly adult books. And then later in life, you know, when I got into my early teens, I started reading, I guess, more serious traditional literature, kind of Tolstoy, Jane Austen, this kind of stuff, Henry James. But I never really read kids' books. I think the closest I came to kids' books was The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that paints quite the picture. Is there a, a book in your life, Rory, that you find comfort in that just is a, a kind of a hug of a book for you? Weirdly, I find John le Carre's books very comforting. But if I'm looking for a real hug when I'm really depressed or when I have a migraine, I love the Hornblower books by C.S. Forrester about this naval captain. And he's a sort of shy, slightly awkward hero who everybody adores but can't really love himself. And I think it's a wonderful thing to listen to, particularly if you're a practical person, you're interested in management, because he's having to manage these big ships. He's having to worry about, you know, what's happening with the ropes, what's happening with the cordage, have we got enough ammunition, etc. 
How do I deal with the drunkenness? I'm no psychiatrist, but, uh, you know, I'm drawing parallels. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Rory, uh, the book that you recommend to people, the, the book you give people. Well, I tell you, if I, the book I give people, like my in-laws and friends, is Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari which I think is just the most wonderfully, beautifully written history of the whole of humankind. Rory Stewart on his edgy political life and some of his literary loves. It is nearly time for us to pack away our crayons and put our quinoa chip packets in the recycling. But before we do that, there is one final game to play. And Miss Audio Book Insider and Chardon Maven, Holly Newson, is here to tell us who is top of the class. Holly, what is happening in the charts? Well, Ruth Jones's latest novel, Love Untold, became a Sunday Times bestseller after being chosen as a Richard and Judy book club pick this summer of 2023. And it also took up residence first on the most sold fiction chart and then on the most read fiction chart, which is a natural progression, but not one that always happens. Um, And this book is still going strong. Ruth Jones is, of course, one of the creators of UK hit comedy series Gavin and Stacey. So books by her are unsurprisingly an absolute treat and very well reviewed to back that up. Um, Love Untold is her third novel. And it's about trying to heal a family rift and the relationship between mothers and daughters. I think this book will stick around in the charts as everyone tells their friends and families to go and give it a read or a listen. I mean, we love Ruth Jones, but the extraordinary thing is that Richard and Judy still have that amount of clout in in bookselling mm, world. They have so much power. They haven't been on telly for how long? <laughs> uh, all right, what's our one to watch today? Um, we should keep an eye on Billy Connolly's new book, Rambling Man. It's already on the most sold non-fiction and travel and holiday charts after release this autumn. And the last book by Billy, Windswept and Interesting, had an incredibly long tail, sticking around in the charts for over a year. Wow. Um, yeah, this book contains stories from his life on the road. And some fans have said the book itself is a little rambling. Uh, but the overall consensus is that if you like Billy, you won't mind tangents or hearing things you might have heard before, especially because it's a very comforting read or listen. And also just lovely to have Billy still in the world, isn't it? Just mm, gorgeous. Completely. And finally, Holly. So finally, this is one of my favourite chart picks this series. It's Jilly Cooper with the excellently named new book, Tackle. <laughs> it involves beloved Jilly Cooper character Rupert Campbell Black buying a football club. Um, and also lots of sexy stuff, I'm sure. Uh, it's top of the erotica chart. But this is where it gets fun. It's also most gifted in sports fiction, which is conjuring some great (laughs) images of mismatched Christmas presents. And the cherry on the cake, it's a number one bestseller in ball games. Well, now, if that wasn't exciting (laughs) enough, I've got some news for you. On our next edition of the podcast, we are talking to the wonderful actor, Catherine Parkinson. Uh, she voiced the audiobook mm. for Tackle, and she'll be talking about how she went about doing that successfully. Sneak preview, she says she only blushed twice. Only twice? Is that a good sign or a bad sign? <laughs> well, I, well, it might tell us more about Catherine than the book. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information... You need will be right there. 
clubbers have gone off to elect a new minister for scores out of ten in the book club cabinet. So it just remains for me to thank Alex Clark for being my very special advisor. Thank you so much. Can you imagine if they put us in charge? <laughs> I don't know what I'd be minister of, but I think we'd make a terrific go of it. Yeah, well, we couldn't do much worse. <laughs> uh, let me remind you that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to join us next time when our book is Aravinda Diga's The White Tiger and the brilliant actor Catherine Parkinson will reveal all about creating the audiobook of Jilly Cooper's Tackle. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.